0: All right, at this time, I'd like you to turn, if you brought your Bibles with you, to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, and um, we are, uh, it's kind of a lengthy Psalm, um, not the most lengthy, but somewhat lengthy. But we're going to read just the first six verses. Um, for those of you who are um, with us this morning, who are not members at Pathway, just to let you know that we've been going through somewhat of an extensive series on various scriptures relating to um, Pathways' vision as well as core values. And up to this point, we have looked at the core values of intentionality, commitment, and courage, and now this morning we're going to be considering the core value of compassion. If you think about it, you can be very intentional and very committed and very courageous in your personal walk with christ and also in the ministry of the church but if you don't have compassion and if you don't notice the needs of others and i'm not talking just within the church but outside the church body then what does that really say about your religion what does it really say about your faith and what does it really say about the ministry of the church kind of reminds me of the opening verses of Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus is addressing a church in the area called, or the city called Ephesus. And he basically said this to the church. He said, you know, you have a number of things going for you. You have discipline and you have doctrine and you have determination. But he says, you've lost your first love. The point being is that you can have many things in place and many things that are right and good. But if you don't have love, and you don't have compassion, then what good are those other things? So we're going to be taking a look at the attribute that we should all have, indeed an attribute that is found in God himself, which is the attribute of and the calling of compassion. Now, Psalm 68, I'm going to read just the first six verses, and then I really want to focus uh, this morning on verses 4 through 6. So let's draw our attention to the scriptures. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy now especially verses 4 through 6 sing to God sing praises to his name lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts his name is the Lord exult before him father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation God settles the solitary in a home He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Now, what I want to do is I also want you to listen to this. I'm going to read just the final two verses of Psalm 68, where the psalmist writes, Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. It's very interesting that what the psalmist does as he ends the psalm is he emphasizes the power of God. In fact, in the last two verses that I read, the word power is used on three occasions. The power of God, the power of God, the power of God to and oftentimes the Bible will do this, it will repeat certain words or phrases in order that they take hold within our minds and our hearts. Psalm 68 is a reflection of the power of God, and I think if you're familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with the Psalms, that Psalm 68 will kind of jump out at you. It's, It's very memorable, and Psalm 68 does indeed focus on the power of God and in a way, I would call it the flexing of God and the military might of God. Arguably, Psalm 68 is one of the more well-known psalms of the Genevan Psalter. And we sing that usually. And we're going to sing it after the service. And I hope that we sing it really out because it's a very powerful psalm. Let God arise and by His might put His enemies to flight with shame and consternation we sing. When we think of Psalm 68, again, we think of the power and the military might of Almighty God. It's said that in 1589, when Protestant forces were being or in the process of being defeated by their Catholic foes, that uh, King Henry of Navarre of France said to his men, essentially, we need to do something here, let us sing. My brothers, lift up a psalm. They called them to sing Psalm 68, which they knew from memory. And so they continued to battle against the Roman Catholic foe and routed them when singing Psalm 68. Well, the interesting thing about Psalm 68, what's interesting about our text, and what we're going to see this morning, is that the very power with which God routs His enemies is the very same power by which He shows Compassion. It's like a father with his children. I know we're focusing a little bit this day on mothers, but fathers are talked about in this passage. Mothers are to show compassion to their children, but so too his fathers. When you think of a father, you think of hopefully a strong figure and a convicted figure. And if he has to, he will protect his family with his might. But by that same power, The father will hold this little one- or two-year-old in his hands and speak very tenderly to that little boy or that little girl. And that's the side that we also get from God in this passage. Without further ado, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. This is how it begins. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is Yahweh the covenant name of the Lord, the God who has entered into covenant with His people. That is, a God who, in contrast to the other people in the world, God places His special affection and love and loyalty and friendship in Christ upon His people. Sing to this God who does what? Who rides through the deserts. Kids, you know, as I oftentimes say and as I oftentimes address you, I want you to think about this at this point where, because you have a rich imagination... You think of, of God, and he's, the, the text says that he's riding through a desert, but you notice it doesn't say what he's riding. But maybe you can fill that out with your imagination. Maybe he's riding a stallion, a, a solid horse, or maybe what he is doing is he is riding a chariot with two stallions in front of him. It's a, it's a picture of, of power. And, and everywhere where God rides in the desert, and the desert is a place of desolation, not much grows there. It's rocky, it's sandy, it's dusty. And, and, but, but it's God who is riding through that desert, that place of desolation. And wherever He goes, according to the overall picture of the Bible, wherever He goes, wherever He rides, there's rejuvenation, there's renewal, there's life. And what could be said about God can also be said about His Son, the Messiah, Jesus. We're given the same picture A.V. team, if you'll put up uh, Isaiah 25, there you go. Here is the prophet Isaiah, and he's looking forward to the coming of Messiah about 600 years before the coming of Jesus. And he's predicting what kind of Messiah he will be. And Isaiah says this, When the Messiah comes, the wilderness will be glad, and the desert will rejoice and blossom. The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will hear the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy now notice the the picture and the images of renewal here for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert what do we call that we call that the gospel we call that good news The good news that accompanies the Messiah that is proclaimed by him, but also done by him in his works of renewal and restoration and the giving of life. Especially to those who need it most. Who need it most. Who are those who need it most? It's the downtrodden. Those who are oftentimes weak and have no advocates. Isaiah mentions them, doesn't he? In the passage we just read, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute. Now, a nice complement to the passage from Isaiah is the text that we have here this morning. We also have four individuals that are vulnerable, have no advocates, or few advocates. So in Isaiah 25, we have the lame, the, the, the deaf, the blind, the mute. But in our passage, what do we find? We find the lonely, and the orphan, and the widow, and the prisoner, What? One man once called the Quartet of the Vulnerable, the Quartet of the Vulnerable. Let's put verses 4 through 6 together. Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name, we're given the name, no other God but Yahweh, the Lord. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert and exult before him. Now notice, especially verses 5 and 6, he's father, the fatherless protector of widows. He settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. So let me just um, stop here at this moment and then we'll get back into the text. Let me ask you, what do you really know experientially? terms of your history with the prisoner, with the orphan, with the lonely, the widow. I think some of us here this morning would say I've had I've had interactions with uh, people like that I've, I've known prisoners, I've talked to them, I've known widows but I think I think for a lot of us maybe we have not had that much interaction if at all. Um, I've said here before I believe that You know when it when it comes to let's say our church here or even uh, perhaps this could be said of many churches within our federation that some you know some of our greatest strengths can also be our weaknesses now we have a number of strengths right we have the strength of uh uh well and this is not a small thing the strength of of history and stability uh, a lot of us grew up in stable homes. Maybe not not all of us, I know that. but a lot of us grew up in stable homes, stable marriages, stable families. We've experienced stable churches, sometimes really big churches, a lot of order, a lot of good things, ministries. Um, we 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 have the stability of Christian education, you know and the support of that. So we have a lot of things, a lot of things, that we, we should not dismiss as something small, but, but there's also something to think about, that sometimes our greatest strengths can be our greatest weaknesses, because sometimes what can happen is it can leave us somewhat insulated from the harsher realities of life, the harsher realities of interaction with the following, really the poor, the homeless, the person who grew up in foster care, the person struggling with sexual identity issues or substance abuse issues or people who just, and maybe, maybe you're struggling with this yourself, and if you're not, maybe you have dealt with people before where, and I have had this many times in the past, where you're dealing with people who just can't seem to get on top of things, ever. Because sometimes it's, they weren't given the tools to flourish in their upbringing. What do we know about people like that? I hope it's your prayer that God would challenge us increasingly with the needs of people who are what our passage calls the vulnerable. People like that we find in verses 5 and 6. Father the fatherless, And protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home, and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Notice the quartet of the vulnerable, and then in addition to that, which I mentioned very briefly, is a group of individuals simply called the rebellious. First of all, let's deal just very briefly with each of these. First of all, God is a father of the fatherless. That is, um, the fatherless we oftentimes know as the orphan. Kids, I know that, that many of you have a mom or a dad, and a dad, or just a mom, or uh, you, you, have, you have grown up in situations where you really never knew what it was like to be in foster care, or you, you grew up in a situation where it, you always knew your dad. Um, in, in the, the past churches that um, I have served, I have met many men and many women who did not really know their father. Um, maybe it was because their parents were divorced and they had to live with their mom, or maybe their dad abandoned the family, or the dad was an alcoholic, and he was kind of a no-show in their lives. Maybe the dad, in one case, he was in, he, all he knew is his dad was in prison the whole time he was growing up. And, uh, and then there's some, there's some that you meet that their dads just beat the tar out of them when they were little kids. So, yeah, they knew their dad, but not in a really living sense. What a beautiful thing it is when from the pulpit and through the testimony of our lives and our words to such people who come to us, we can say, you know what? There's, there's, there's a gospel word for you here. There's good news. That good news is this. Though you may not have had an earthly father who cared for you, You have a father in heaven who knows you and who knows you by name, who cares for you, who loves you, who promises to protect you, and who calls you to draw near to him. Do that. Know your heavenly father. That's the kind of father that we have in heaven. Moving on, God is also a protector of widows. Here the emphasis is not on... Fathers, but it's on husbands. He's a protector. Notice that word, he's a protector of widows. Kids, what is a widow? A widow is a a woman, she may be older or she may be younger, who's lost her husband through death, usually. When a woman loses her husband, what happens is that there's a form of amputation that takes place. And those of you who have lost husbands or wives or children, you know what I'm talking about. You know the amputation. Um, And there's a sense of uh, insecurity that takes place. When um, my sister-in-law became a widow, when my brother was killed in a motorcycle accident, Um, she was only 23 years old. And I've shared with some of you before, I'll be very quick with this, but uh, as a result of my brother's death, my mother wrote a book published by Baker Bookhouse. And at one point in the book, before my brother died, he was in the hospital after uh, getting attention to his injuries. And she writes this, she said, With apprehension, we, that's my mom and my dad, entered the St. Joseph's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona, in the trauma center. We stepped out of the elevator, and Kathy, ran toward us with arms outstretched. She was only 23 years old, stricken, fragile, like a bird with its wings clipped." When you lose a husband, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're a bird with the wings clipped. And um, there's, there's a certain disorientation that takes place and a great sense of insecurity and vulnerability. We have the kind of God who, in a situation like that, is not unaware. But in the life of the child of God, and that widow is a child, of God reaches out and he says, You know what? Now I will come to the fore as your husband in a way that you have not experienced before. And I will be your protector. And I will care for you. And you need to believe that. You need to believe that. God is also the God of the prisoner, and he brings the prisoner, according to the text, to prosperity. So who's the prisoner? The prisoner is the one who's forgotten. In Hebrews chapter 13, I believe, the church has said, don't forget about the prisoners. Visit the prisoners. Because they are behind walls. Out of sight, out of mind. I don't know if you've ever had interactions with prisoners before, but it's a very, very sad situation. And many of them are doing an extended period of time. If I can also share this with you. Joy's dad Uh, My wife's dad was a pastor in a very conservative denomination called Reformed Church of the U.S., more of German Reformed background, and he had a young man in the church at age 16. Dad catechized this kid along with other kids, and at age 16, what he did is he uh, saw a woman on the road, stopped the car, and he raped her, and he attempted to kill her, but she survived. At age 16, he was tried as an adult. He went into the Iowa prison system, and he stayed there until his early 50s when he was finally, by the grace of God, granted parole. Um, members of the family kept up with him, and he came to speak at our church, the former church where I passed Phoenix United Reformed Church, and he addressed us after a worship service one time, and he noted how in prison, how God had changed his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He converted him. And now he is flourishing back in his little hometown of Iowa. It's a beautiful thing that that little community did not shun him, but they embraced him in coming back. He's running his own business, and he is flourishing. God, God is the one who brings the prisoner to prosperity. Now, the prisoner, the orphan, the widow, what do they all have in common? According to the text, they're vulnerable and also They have very few advocates, if any at all. And finally, they are often, and there's the last group that's mentioned here, the isolated, the lonely. And what does God do for the prisoner? What he does is he takes them out of a very captive, enslaved, and toxic environment, and he places them in homes. He places them in communities. He places them in churches. It's God who does this. It's God who protects the widow. It's God who's the father of the fatherless. It is God who is the protector of widows, and it's God who leads the prisoner to prosperity. Not to poverty, but to prosperity. It's God. And the rebellious? The rebellious among the prisoner, the rebellious among the widow, the rebellious among the orphan, that is, those who turn their backs on God, what does God do? Unless they humble themselves and draw near and own up to who they are and and cry out to God for His grace and the forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ, what happens? What happens is that God leaves them in the desert. God says, if you're going to turn your back on me, If you are not going to accept the offer of freedom and rejuvenation and life that I offer you, I leave you in the wilderness. I leave you in the desert. And some might say, well, that's a mean thing for a God of love to do. No, it's not. God leaves them there so that they may in time come to the end of themselves and draw near to God. And for those in prison and for those who are orphans and widows and so on, though they are in very difficult circumstances, they will never, we will never find life until we come to grips with who we are and our need for Jesus. You know, by the way, this rejuvenation in life comes to its most vivid expression actually in the ministry of Jesus. I so want you to listen to this. When you look at the book of Luke, is one of the four Gospels that records the ministry of Jesus. And actually, Jesus also reaches out to a quartet of the vulnerable. So in Isaiah, we have the, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute. In our passage, we have the lonely, the orphan, the widow, and the prisoner. Then in the ministry of Jesus, what we find is Jesus reaching out to this quartet of vulnerable, namely tax gatherers who were known as embezzlers, skimming monies off the tops that they collected from individuals. These are not the best of society, by the way. So you have the tax gatherers, and then you have what are called sinners. These are just generally immoral people who have turned their backs on God, many of them caught in the trap of sexual immorality. And then you find prostitutes, and finally you have the sick and the poor who are part of another group together. Okay, So those four... And it's very interesting that compared to the religious leaders who are around Jesus, they wouldn't touch these people with a 10-foot pole, and I'll tell you why. Because they thought, well, if they're blind, they're lame, they're deaf, or if they're struggling as prostitutes or just generally caught in some kind of sin or they're sick or they're poor, the reason for that is because they've sinned against God, and God is judging them. Jesus demonstrates that that's pretty poor theology. So what Jesus does, he interacts with them and he has table fellowship. He actually spends time not just talking with them, but eating with them to the chagrin of the religious leaders around him. I just want to add this thing, and this is very important. This ministry of compassion that we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus, that was not an addendum. That was not an attachment to what he did. It was at the very center of, of what he did you know when we talk about compassion and actually putting legs to our compassion many times in the church today and it's across the denomination this is what we call an addendum it's an attachment to what the church does but when you look at the ministry of Jesus he fundamentally preached the Word of God he taught the Word of God he healed he performed miracles but in each of those things they were driven by the Greek word is splogsna that is compassion that actually welled up within the gut within the very innards of Jesus. It was compassion that compelled Jesus to reach out and to minister to people by means of the preaching of the gospel, but the doing of the gospel and providing renewal and life to those who heard him and to those who received his touch. And one other thing before we draw to a close, and that is this. The church in the best of times has taken... It's cues from Jesus. You notice that when you read the first two-thirds of the Bible in the Old Testament, one of the indications when people had turned their backs on God is that they were not caring for the needy around them. In fact, they were abusing them. They were abusing the widow. They were abusing the orphan. They were abusing the poor. Over and over, you have to be blind not to catch this in the Old Testament. Over and over again, God is chastising His people for being cold to the needy around them. But in the early church, what we find, in, in the depths of depravity of the Roman Empire, what we find is that the early church members had a heart of compassion for the poor, for these orphans, for these kids that had been thrown out of their homes. When some families were keeping the boys when they were born and leaving the girls behind, the church would gather them up and they would minister to these kids and they would raise them as their own. Constantly, the early church was reaching out with compassion. Why is that? Three reasons. Because of the example of Jesus, they understood in a simple way that if Jesus showed compassion, they were to show compassion. We could say the same thing, Psalm 68. doesn't mention anything about us. It mentions everything about God, but the very clear implication is that if we're going to be imitators of God, if God shows compassion, we are to show compassion. So the early church said, you know what, Jesus is our example. He did it. We need to do it. But it was also on the basis of the incarnation of Jesus. And when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about Jesus taking on human flesh. And Jesus is the one who identified with humanity and as a way of expressing compassion, he reached out to them, those who were his own, those who were human like he was. And the early church said, you know what? what we're going to do is we're going to perform a form of incarnational ministry as well. We are not incarnated like the Christ, but in a sense we are are incarnated in a sense that we follow his lead in drawing near human to human with those in need. And finally they did it because of the intimacy of Jesus. Jesus didn't hold himself at, at, at arm's length and make excuses about why he could not enter into people's lives. He dove in and he ministered his compassion those who need him most. And then Jesus went on to say to his people, and always remember this, to the extent that you show compassion, the extent that you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. You do it to me. So where does that leave us? What does it mean for us? After all, compassion is a core value. First, we obviously need to show compassion to each other. That goes without saying, right? Among brothers and sisters in Christ. But that should not be the end of it. May God give us a heart of compassion for those outside of us. Because, brothers and sisters, the, I don't know, open your eyes in Abbotsford. The need is great. I'll show this one final thing. um, Personal thing. A couple weeks ago, I went for a run. And as I was running, there was a woman sitting on a bench. And she had her head down. She had a few bags around her waiting for a bus, it looked like. So I ran, I looked at her. And I said to myself, I wanted to finish my run. I said, Lord, if she's still there, when I come back, I will talk to her. Go around. About 15 minutes later, there she was. You sitting there like this. And I sat down to her, and the first thing I did is I assured her, I said, "Don't don't worry, I' not a creepy guy. I just want to want to quickly talk to you because I see you're down." I said, "What's your name?" She said, "Angel." I said, "That's a pretty name. Did Your mom give you that name?" She said, "No, a paramedic gave me that name after I overdosed. He saved my life." He said, "An angel must have been kind to you." So I took that name Angel." And I said, uh, "So are you are you still do- are you still doing it? Are you still?" getting high and whatever. And I said, uh, she said, yeah. I said, is it meth? She goes, yeah. I said, is it heroin? She goes, yeah. I said, okay. Um, do you have kids? She says, yeah, I have six, but I can't take care of them. I said, you are living on the street? She said, yeah. Anyway, the conversation went on for 15 minutes. And as she's talking, she's talking, these, these, these tears are just streaming down her face. And she wouldn't look up at me, but I could just tell this, these tears are just dripping on the ground. You know, here's a woman in pain. Do we notice people like that? Do we care about people like that? You know, um, before the bus came, I knew I didn't have much time, so I said, let me say a quick prayer, and we prayed together. And uh, I went on my way, and she got on the bus. I only share that with you to say, you know, if, if we... If we don't take note of such individuals, and if it stirs nothing in our hearts, then we really have to ask ourselves, what's the problem? Not with them. What's the problem with me? If it does stir something, then it's a beautiful thing. Ask the Lord, because it begins in the heart, doesn't it? You're going to show compassion. It's got to begin here. It's got to begin here. Very quickly, secondly, today is Mother's Day. And it reminds us not only about the important role of moms in the lives of their children, but the important role that moms here and, um, Women here, single women too. Um, all you women have a huge impact on this church and you have a huge opportunity to minister the gospel to other women who may come in the context of this church. Have your antenna up. Look for those who are needy and who need ministering to. Um, single, married, separated, divorced, those who are wounded, those who are abused. And then finally this, one of the ministries here that needs to be further researched and developed and we're in the process of doing that is not only our Love Pathway team, but also our Love Abbotsford team, how we might minister the gospel in this city. And we need to pray for this and we need to ask God for direction in this. Um, Given our history and somewhat of our uniform culture, it's gonna take a bit of extra effort to put ourselves out there and open ourselves up to opportunities. And you know what? If you're going to get serious about this, it's going to make us a little bit uncomfortable, and that's okay. We never want to be a comfortable church. So it's going to make us probably a bit uncomfortable, and it's going to stretch us, and it may require us to leave this place one day, maybe find a place near to the trouble, so to speak, and those needs that we find maybe in downtown somewhere. And I know people have talked about this, and it's like the first thing that always comes up, <laughs> oh, it's always finances. Oh, Abbotsford's so expensive. Oh, you know, is there's so little availability. Do you believe that God created the world in the span of six days simply by speaking it into existence? Do you believe that God opened up the Red Sea so that people could pass through on dry ground? Do you believe that God actually caused an axe head to float in the water? Do you believe in all the miracles of Jesus, even to the point where Jesus raised the dead to life? Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Then why can't we believe that God will open up an opportunity for us to find a permanent place, maybe downtown, maybe in the mess of things, so that we can be the kind of church that Jesus indeed embodied. A church of compassion. God is a God of compassion. Jesus was a God of compassion. And it was the very, remember, this was the very centerpiece of his ministry. May that be here for us as well. Because, brothers and sisters, if we don't bring the gospel and word and deed as the church of Jesus Christ, who's going to do that in a saving way? Church is a precious thing. Let's think about these things, okay? Uh, We have to sing yet, but before we do, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the God of the vulnerable, of those who have few spokesmen, few advocates. You're the God of the widow, the orphan, the lonely, the prisoner, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute, The sinner and the prostitute and the sick and the poor. Lord, there's so much trouble in this Lord world. We, we live, as the apostle Peter says, in a wicked and perverse generation. We live in a world that is hurting. We live in a world that is enslaved by its own sin, and they don't know the answer. They don't know where to go, and they just like Angel, Lord, for who we pray right now. Oh, God, deliver her and others of their tears and draw them to the gospel and draw them to the church and deliver them of the various forms of enslavement and self-inflicted wounds that they bear. So, Lord, put that in our hearts and help us to pray. Lord, lead us to a place, a new place that we're thankful for this gym, but we pray for a more permanent place that where we can be of use, where we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. God, grant that, we pray. So bless us in that. Bless our respective churches, as was noted uh, earlier. Bless our federation and the synodical meeting that it has this coming week. God, bless us, not just as the Church of Jesus Christ, but as Canada Reformed Churches, because, Lord, you have given us so much. Help us not to just preserve what we have, protect what we have, but, but to say, if it is the gospel... If we have such a treasure, oh God, then help us, give us desire to share this treasure with others. So, Lord, we pray for this. And we pray this all in Jesus, our precious Savior's name. Amen.